This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For a quarter of a century, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics who in their research and studies contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. What is the performance paradox? What is the difference between learning while doing and learning by doing? And how can we overcome the performance paradox and change our lives and the lives of others? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Eduardo Bersinio, author of the new book, The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. Eduardo, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, Michael. Thank you for having me. So your book, I I really enjoyed reading it. It's The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. Uh, Eduardo, what prompted you to write the book and who's the intended audience for the work? Well, what prompted me to write the book is I learned along my journey some mistakes that I had made in my career. Um, I, I realized that I had gotten into what I call chronic performance. If I was just always trying to perform as best as I could, trying to minimize mistakes all the time. And I realized how that actually creates stagnation and we need to do something different in order to to continue to improve and to achieve greater results um, in more important things. And so I started sharing this insight in the work that I did to help organizations uh, foster growth mindset cultures or cultures of learning and high performance and and this resonated you know people's eyes lit up and and it led to great insights and discussions among leaders around how they wanted to lead and what kind of cultures they wanted to create so i created a i did a tedx talk on this it's like 11 minutes and and it now has over 4 million views it really resonated and the book was a way to dive a lot deeper into the topic and also a way for, for me to share what, what I've learned in the last 16 years of doing this work, but also an, an opportunity for me to learn. I interviewed over 100 people, great learners and performers, learned a ton of examples and strategies. Um, it helped me continue to evolve my thinking. And so it was a, a, a great project outside of my comfort zone, outside of the things that I had done before uh, that led me to grow myself as well. Yeah, that's great. So when when you when you pick the book up and it says the performance paradox, great title, by the way, it, it begs the question, what is in your mind the performance paradox? And and how does it you mentioned chronic work? Um, I'm just wondering, how does it um the, the concept of chronic work factor into this paradox? And what are some of the key implications of chronic performance? Yeah, so the performance paradox is a counterintuitive reality that If we focus only on performing, our performance suffers, our results go down. And so what does that mean? Well, the one thing that I learned, you know, in working with my mentor, Carol Dweck, and and got the chance to work with um, the late Professor Anders Ericsson and other, other thought leaders and practitioners too, 
I realized that I was unclear between the difference between learning and performing and and that we can all really benefit from getting really clear about this. So a way to become clear about it is to get step out of our context and look at people who are fantastically skilled at what they do, who are world-class, um, for example, athletes in, in domains where performance can be objectively measured, where these people are, are just so good at what they do. And sometimes what we tend to think kind of vaguely, we have a sense that the reason somebody becomes fantastic at what they do is that they have spent a lot of time doing that thing that we see. Like if we see a fantastic tennis player, they're fantastic because they've spent 10,000 hours playing tennis. And if you look at the research, the research is clear that that's not true. The reason these fantastic performers get so skilled is that they spend a lot of time doing something very different from what we see. What we see is them performing in what I call the performance zone, which is, you know, when they're doing, you know, they're playing a championship match, they're trying to win. They're trying to focus on the things that they do best, trying to minimize mistakes. That's the performance zone. But so if they're having trouble with a particular move, they're going to avoid that move during that match. But then after the match, they'll go to their coach and say, coach, I have to work on this particular move that I was trying to avoid during the game. Now we have to do this. Like that's what we need to pay attention to. And that's a very different activity, uh, what it, which I call the learning zone, um, which is when we leap into the unknown, when we do things that may or may not work, when we engage in activities that are designed for improvement, not designed for performance. Um, and both of these zones are critical. The performance zone is how we get things done. And it's a big way that we contribute to others and that we change the world. Uh, but we need to habituate and systematize both of these zones. And often most of us uh, gravitate toward chronic performance, toward being in the performance zone all the time in our work and our lives, just trying our best, doing things as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes. And if, if that's all we're doing, uh, which is what chronic performance is, then we stagnate. It actually works when we are novices, when we're just getting started at something we're so bad, like if we just try to do the activity, we'll get better. But once we become proficient, we'll stagnate. And then we'll, because we're working hard at the activity and not getting better, we tend to develop a fixed mindset, the belief that we can't improve further because we're trying hard and we're not getting better. And the the, the reality is that we are just working hard in an ineffective way. We're hard, working hard at performing without engaging in activities that are designed for improvement. And that's a great segue into sort of combining my next couple of questions, which was, you know, the effort to perform versus the effort to improve. And and how does it relate? You mentioned just now, Eduardo, the, the idea of a fixed mindset. And I was wondering if you could explain the difference between so-called fixed mindsets and a growth mindset. And to what extent, given what you've written in your book, is a growth mindset essential for overcoming uh, that the, the, the chronic performance uh, conundrum, if you will? Yeah. So to overcome the performance paradox conundrum, uh, we we need kind of four what I call cornerstones of change. And, and I'll mention what those are. But one of them is a growth mindset, which you just mentioned. That was something that was discovered by Carol Dweck, my mentor, Stanford professor in the 1980s. It's done a ton of research on it. And now like thousands of researchers have done um, research on growth mindset. And a growth mindset is the belief 
that people can change. It's a belief that our abilities and qualities are malleable. They're things that we can develop over time. So for example, if we think that a great leader is a great leader because they're natural leaders, that tends to reflect more of a fixed mindset, right? The reason people, somebody's great at something is because they're naturals at it rather than anybody can become a better leader. Whether you're already a great leader or just starting out, you can improve further. That's a growth mindset. Or we might see kind of extroversion or introversion in fixed ways or in malleable ways in a fixed mindset or in a growth mindset or athleticism or the ability to work with numbers or with words. And we can see these different abilities as things that people either have or don't have. Intelligence is another example. We might see people as you know, their intelligence fixed at a certain level. That's a fixed mindset about intelligence versus anybody can become smarter. That would be a growth mindset about intelligence. And, and this belief that we can change is essential in order for us to engage in learning behaviors uh, that, that lead us to improvement. But it is also not sufficient. It is necessary, but not sufficient. Because if we believe that we can change, but we are not clear about how to change, we think that we just need to work hard at something and we'll get better from just executing. Uh, then we'll try hard, we'll fail, we won't get better, and then we'll develop more of a fixed mindset, right? I can't improve because I'm trying to improve and it's not working. And um, so the second thing that we need is not just to believe that we can change, but also understanding how to change and how to improve. And that's where the learning zone and the performance zone comes in. Third, we need a why. We need a reason to care, right? So if we if we work in government, we need to kind of connect and reconnect with uh, what. why do we care? Why is the work we do important? What, what difference does it make in other people's lives and in my life and in my colleagues' lives? Um, and so because we... Both the learning zone and the performance zone require effort. They require different forms of effort, to your point. In the performance zone, we're, we're putting effort into the things as, to, to do them as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes. In the learning zone, we're leaping beyond the known. We're experimenting. We're trying things that may or may not work. We're soliciting feedback. We're thinking about mistakes and talking about what we can learn from them. And those are things that are different than just executing, but they're both involve time and attention and so we need a reason why we care in order to engage in both. And then finally, it's really helpful when we also develop the sense that we belong in a learning community, that the, our colleagues are also learners. They're people who are interested in continuing to improve, continuing to gain new insights, new strategies, and in collaborating both in the learning zone, the performance zone, so that we can share transparently, talk about what we're working to improve, what we're struggling with, asking for ideas from the other person, different strategies, giving and receiving feedback. Um, and when we are in that community where people value learning and when people engage in learning behaviors, their social status rate goes up, uh, then that, that, that motivates us to be motivated and effective learners. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, and I was thinking about it as reading your book. I was thinking about flow and and how if you follow some of the things you've laid out in terms of the the approaches, you you kind of get a sense of that. And, and one thing I was I was thinking about is you know the adage is practice make perfect, and and the difference between practice and performance. You kind of alluded to it, but you have an interesting anecdote which you share in the book, and as the uh, Williams sisters in tennis, how does that? anecdote sort of illustrate the difference between practice and performance and kind of, I don't know, question that adage that practice makes perfect. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of us say, I'm going to go practice tennis and we go play a game of tennis, right? 
or you know this physician has been practicing for 10 years what is it well that we often mean that they've been performing for 10 years not practicing for 10 years uh and so in the in the case of the williams sisters the at the time when they were growing up um and still to this point to this day to some point as to some extent the the young kids who have a lot of prem, promise to become great at tennis um they they are encouraged to and they tend to engage in juniors tournaments a lot so they spend every weekend playing tournaments um and they get a lot of pressure from their parents and their coaches to play lots of games and and play in tournaments and what um richard williams the uh, serena and venus venus's father um uh, thought that that was not a uh, a healthy community or approach uh in for different reasons and he did not he took his daughters out of that community and he 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 had them not um play in any tournaments for years before they became professional and so they focused on actually true practice both kind of the learning zone both in school they they it was it was important to them to to take school seriously and learn a lot from school and also learn a lot from tennis and and get better at tennis and they re, they realized and they understood that the way to get better at tennis is not by playing tournaments is by engaging in deliberate practice and and being deliberate about improvement not about performance and so for years that's what they did when they became pro they were world class even though they hadn't been playing championships um, and they learned through that experience that the way you get better is not from playing tournaments it's from doing something different the other thing that 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 i forgot to mention from your question is the 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 phrase practice makes perfect um in, implies that perfection is attainable right and so so that that the goal is perfection and if we practice then we will be perfect uh perfection is a fixed mindset idea because it conveys that you can't improve further because you are perfect right and so um I think practice makes better effective practice makes better you know it's not as, as cute and it doesn't rhyme as much but the, the reality and the truth is that effective practice makes better and perfection can be a direction that we aim toward but it can't be something that we attain because if we did then we couldn't improve further from there yeah that's a great point your book along with the anecdotes and the practical applications some of the insights you draw you also have some concepts that you that you talk about and illustrate and i was hoping you could tell us more about the performance learn possibility curve yeah so that's a visual depiction um of the idea that in order to maximize uh, or promote our probability of success at something at attaining whatever our goals might be personal or professional we we need a mixture of learning zone and performance zone if we are always only on the performance zone which i call chronic performance then we don't discover more effective ways to to operate and so we stagnate we don't we we the, the on top of that the world is always changing so we're a lot less capable to learn from that change to navigate that change and to drive change but on the other end you know if we're if we're always just learning and not performing what i call chronic learning and they, i've met some people who feel like this they learn about the framework and they realize wow i realized i'm always in the in learning zone and i need more performance zone in my life um and the performance zone is how we achieve results is how we get things done and we need a mixture of these two things in order to promote our success and and make greater progress to our, our goals throughout the conversation we've been talking eduardo about 
these zones, performance and learning. I, I was hoping if you could just spend a little time briefly explaining the essential aspects of each zone. And, and, and more importantly for the audience, from your perspective, what determines which zone one is in, you know, during the day, if you will? Yeah. So when our goal is only to get things done as best as we know how, trying to minimize risk, trying to minimize mistakes, then we are in the performance zone. When our goal is to improve and our goal is to get better, um, then, and we're engaging in strategies designed for that, then we're in the learning zone. And when we're doing both, because we can we can do both at the same time, just like we can have salt and pepper at the same time, we can engage in the learning zone, the performance zone at the same time. Um, that's what I call learning while doing. Uh, and that's when we have both goals, right? We have the goal of getting things done in a way that's also going to lead to new insights and new learning and, and improved skills. And that's when we have both of those goals and we're using strategies to achieve both of those at the same time. That's great. Yeah, as a, as a follow-up, uh, and maybe you already touched on this, Eduardo, but how do we know when it's time to move from one zone to another? Or or is that question kind of making it more, again, have, is, am I coming at this question with a fixed mindset that these zones are not fluid, but they're more you know, discrete and, and, and standalone. Is, is, is there something wrong with that question that I just asked? I just realized it as I was asking it. I don't think there's anything wrong with the question. I think it's a great question for us to think about as individuals and also to talk about with our peers, with our colleagues, for example, about when do we want to be in each zone? What are the times and spaces? Um, and yeah, when, when should we go from one to the other? Uh, so first, when the stakes are really high and the consequences of mistakes can do significant damage, then we want we might want to just be in the performance zone, right? And and not take risks, um, not do like just do what we have learned works best. Try to minimize mistakes, and that's a very reasonable thing to do. Like if I'm a surgeon and I'm operating on a patient, I I want to just focus on performing as best as I can for this patient. Um, also, uh, when when our time frame is really tight, like we have a big project that is due in two days or this Friday, and it's a big stretch just to get the project done, uh, we might want to choose to be this week to just be in the performance zone, just focus on getting this done, uh, not, not doing a lot of other things, just because this is really important, we need to get through this. But if we the problem is that we tend to do that every week, right? If we, every week we're doing a fire drill where we're only focused on performing, then we stagnate. We don't get more things done over time. So that's that's when to be in the performance zone. Um, every other time we want to be in the kind of learning while doing time, right? Where we are uh, doing things, but trying new ways of doing things like changing something or tweaking something, developing hypotheses about uh, new ideas about what might work better, testing it out, seeing if it works better. We want to be soliciting feedback. That's probably the number one most powerful learning zone strategy in our lives and in our work is to solicit feedback frequently. And often we want to be like talking about surprises and mistakes so we can learn from those things. And we can do that, right, as we, as we get things done. And, and we want to shift to the learning zone whenever something surprises us and whenever we make a mistake, we want to 
ask ourselves, what can I learn from this? Like if I if I made a mistake, we don't want to just say, okay, mistakes are fine and move on. We want to say, all right, well, what led to this mistake? What changes in systems or habits could I make to prevent this mistake from happening in the future? Often, if if we make a mistake that, for example, creates a problem for a person, like a customer, for example, or or a stakeholder, we we might jump to solve the problem for that person. And that's a good thing to do. But we sometimes miss the, 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 the deeper work of how can I change my systems and habits so that this problem doesn't recur for a different person in the future? Uh, so those are, so, so we, you know, when for the greatest performers, when they make a mistake or when they struggle, when they experience failure, that's a cue to get into the learning zone. What is the difference between learning while doing and learning by doing? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the special edition of the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Eduardo Bricinio, author of the new book, The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. You know, you noted in your book, Eduardo, we don't learn by doing, but we learn while doing. Um, how can we, inter- and you may have already touched on this a little bit, but I was hoping you could elaborate. How can we integrate the learning zone and performance zone? And what does what goes into learning while doing and how does it differ from learning by doing? Yeah. So there's this term, this common term called learning by doing, which I think the people who do it well do what I describe as learning while doing, but learning by doing, I think is confusing because it implies that if you just do, you will learn and you will get better. And, and that's not true that, you know, the people who uh, first conceived of this idea of experiential learning and studied it and, and were theorists around it, they didn't say you just do and then you'll get better. They actually talked about a cycle and different things that you do in order to get better. And so I use this term learning while doing to remind ourselves that we can learn while we do, but that means we need to be deliberate about how we do things in a different way so that we learn along the way. And and so that involves trying things in a different way, not doing things always, because sometimes we like the idea of improvement, 
but we don't like the idea of change very much. And the reality is that if we haven't changed, we haven't gotten better. We're the same. In fact, we've probably become less effective because the world has changed while we haven't. And so the more that we understand that we can change and we develop systems and habits to continuously change proactively rather than only when we make mistakes reactively, then the more that we can improve over time. And and so it, it involves changing things. It involves experimenting. It involves soliciting feedback often. It involves being deliberate about what do I want to improve or what do we want to improve as a team and how are we going to go about it and putting in, in place the habits and structures in order to not just engage in the, in the performance zone, but also in the learning zone along the way. That's great. I was hoping you could walk us through the key aspects of the essential learning strategies and any advice you outline really robust strategies for bolstering the learning zone. Uh, so any advice of how to apply those strategies as well? Sure. So um, I think probably like the most powerful strategy in most workspaces is, is soliciting feedback often from various people. And so if we are um, serving different constituents and, and collaborating with colleagues, soliciting feedback from our colleagues, soliciting feedback from our constituents about you know how things worked today, what worked well, what might be something to consider um, changing for the future and getting ideas from other people because more brains are smarter than one brain. And so it, it can help us um, get better both in the learning zone and the performance zone, especially when those brains are diverse. They're seeing things from different perspectives. They have different experiences. They have different skill sets and knowledge. So we can by soliciting feedback often, rather than focusing on giving feedback, which is fine too. But by soliciting feedback very often, we change our mental models around how important continuous improvement and change is to ourselves um, and how we are proactively doing that on a, on a daily basis. And we're making it easier for other people to give us feedback and to share what they're thinking, which is always useful information. We don't always have to act upon what we hear, but it's always good information for us to understand how we're coming across and what other people are perceiving and what their preferences are. So that's one is kind of feedback. Uh, and then we can learn about effective ways to give feedback. Uh, like, for example, I like to focus on the observable behaviors and, and how those behaviors affect me and not try to get into other people's heads, like not make assumptions about other people's intentions or what they're thinking or what they're feeling, because often... I'm wrong about those assumptions and that triggers the other person and makes them defensive. And so there, you know, we can learn about how do we become better at soliciting feedback, at giving feedback. There's lots of kind of books and, and TED Talks and uh, lots of resources about any of these strategies, right? Um, another strategy is experimenting. Often um, we experiment and we tend to get into confuse a little bit why we're experimenting and and experiment in a way that becomes too performance oriented and i have a couple of stories and examples of that in the book but they're they're often um like for example if if a retailer wanted to to expand uh they kind of got advice from industry uh experts and they advised to expand in the same cities uh, open new restaurants in the same cities they're already in rather than in new cities because then you can spend your marketing spending to build a brand in those cities and then several restaurants would benefit from that um, and that's often a best practice in in food services but for this particular um, uh, restaurant it was a lobster chain called luke's lobster 
they realized that when they did that, the 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 sales did not improve or increase in in proportion to the number of locations, and and because people view eating lobsters as something that's more special. They're willing to travel further in their city to go eat a lobster rather than uh, maybe like a burrito or a burger. And so they realized that for their particular type of restaurant, um, that it, it would be better to like do a, a bit more research on the people that they were serving and the locations where they were going to open restaurants. But they tried to open too many restaurants in too many, city, too many cities too quickly because they were they they forgot kind of they needed to test to learn uh, to see how things work before focusing on scaling and performing. And there's lots of examples of how we tend to do that sometimes. We tend to experiment and get confused by trying to perform and scale too quickly. And then it makes it harder for us to iterate and to learn from each iteration and to quickly, uh, to fail quickly. The quickly part is really important. When we try to do things at too big a scale, it slows us down. It slows down our improvement and then it lowers our performance at the end. Uh, so that's that's another strategy. Another strategy is thinking about how we build our integrated knowledge and skills. In today's world, we sometimes think, oh, because there's the internet and there's artificial intelligence, knowing things is less important because we can always ask the technology. But actually, like knowing things is really useful. It helps us generate the knowledge and the insights when we need it and integrate it so that we can we can act competently when different situations arises. So these are kind of different. There's tons of different learning zone strategies and they're um, applicable different skills that we might be interested in. And so for for each person, it's important for us to be, be clear about what is most important for me to work on and to improve and what are effective strategies to do that. Um, and that's that's a journey for each of us to to be on. Yeah, it's great. You you do in your book mention that mistakes um, should be, we should do them quickly, if you will, but they're, they're not, they, I like the fact that you point out that mistakes are not universally good or bad, but they are powerful and the power is in how we, how we respond to them. And I'm wondering how, powerful in mistakes and how can we unleash the power of mistakes to grow and learn? And perhaps in your answer, you could tell us what you've identified as four kinds of mistakes. Sure. Yeah. So, so mistakes are really powerful. They're even more powerful than I knew before I started working on this book. Um, I learned that in, in the science of neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity is the, the brain's ability to change and to rewire. And that's really important because each thought that we have comes from a network of neurons firing together. And so when we rewire our brain, we change our thinking, we change our intelligence, uh, we change the way we think. And from our mid-20s on, the main way that we can proactively drive our own neuroplasticity is by making mistakes, is when the brain makes a prediction that turns out to be wrong. There's neurochemicals in the brain that trigger the brain to rewire. If we kind of pay attention to what surprises us or the mistake that we make, and we stick with it to try to figure it out. And so that's how powerful and important mistakes are to becoming smarter and to becoming better. But mistakes also lower performance. Like when, you know, a great performance involves few or indiscernible mistakes. So sometimes we have this conflicted view of mistakes. We know that in some ways they're helpful, but in other ways, you know, we want to avoid them. And, and that creates conflict internally within ourselves and sometimes within interpersonally with, with the people around us. And so I find it helpful to kind of think about different kinds of mistakes and how we want to approach each of them. The first kind 
is what I call the stretch mistakes, which is when we are in the learning zone, we're trying something beyond what we can do. We're trying something that may or may not work. And we have to expect to make mistakes. We can't expect to do things flawlessly in the learning zone. That's that. We, if we are trying to be flawless, we are going to be in the performance zone. That's that's by definition. We're trying to do things as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes. And so we need to figure out what are the times and spaces where I want to take on challenges, do things that are outside of what I can do well without mistakes in ways that are not going to create damage, right? And ways that are safe um, and that are going to help me improve. Uh, the second kind of mistake is the high stakes mistake, which is the mistake we make that really does create damage. And so we want to try to think about uh, what times and spaces do we want to be in the performance zone, trying the best we know how, trying to minimize mistakes. Of course, we're humans. We might make mistakes in the performance zone true too, but when do we want to try to minimize mistakes, right? The, the third mistake is the sloppy mistake, which is when we do things that we should already know how to do. We've already kind of learned this lesson before. And, you know, sometimes these are not important things we can laugh at and they bring us joy to our lives. But other times there, you know, and anytime we make a mistake, whether in the high stakes mistakes or sloppy mistakes, we can ask the question of what led to this mistake and what can I learn from it? What can I change in my systems and habits to try to prevent this mistake from happening in the future? And when we make sloppy mistakes and we ask that question, we often surface opportunities to to increase our focus, to change our systems, our tools, our setup, our environment, so we can better focus on what we mean to focus on. Um, and then finally is the aha moment mistake, which is when we do something as we intended, but then we realize it was the wrong thing to do. And these are often really precious surprises. So when we make aha moment mistakes, we want to pay attention to them and think about what we can learn from them, but it, they're harder to elicit proactively. Um, we, we can elicit more aha moments by soliciting feedback often and broadly. When we solicit feedback, we we learn what's in other people's minds and that often leads to aha moments. But the key here is that what we can do most proactively is to make more stretch mistakes by doing not not by trying to do things incorrectly, but by doing things that are challenging, that are beyond our comfort zone and uh, and paying attention to what what mis what confusion we have, what surprises we encounter, what mistakes we make, so that we can learn and improve from them. That's terrific. You know, I would like you to elaborate a little bit on how a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. How does it handle mistakes? If I have a fixed mindset, how do I handle a mistake, and 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 how does it harm me going forward? And if I have a growth mindset, how can I leverage a mistake to grow and learn? Absolutely. Uh, so there was a, a set of research studies that wondered, do people in a growth mindset and people in a fixed mindset, do their brains work differently when they're solving problems? And so they first assess people's mindsets. So they asked people, do you believe that you can become smarter? Do you believe that intelligence can be changed? And based on those questions, they knew whether people saw intelligence as something that could be developed or something that was fixed in people. And then they put these people in, in a brain scan machine to look at their brain in real time as they solved problems inside of the machine. And what they found is that people in a fixed mindset, their brain was most active when they were getting information about whether they got this problem right or wrong. Did I get this right? Did I get this right? Did I get this right? It's almost like they were trying to find out how smart they were. And their brain was not active at all at a different time which is what, at the time when people who be, who believe they could become smarter 
their brain was most active at that other time. Now, people in a growth mindset, they paid attention to whether they got the problems right or wrong, but they paid even more attention at a different time, which is when they were getting information about what they did, did wrong, what mistakes they made. They wanted to notice it. They wanted to think about what they could learn from those mistakes. And as a result of that, they did better in the subsequent problems. So they they, their performance increased. They became better problem solvers because they paid attention and they thought about their mistakes. And they did that because, in part because they, they believed that they could become smarter. And they also understood that paying attention to mistakes is a useful learning strategy, right? We can, we can, we can get better at that. So what we can learn from that is that if we just see these people, they appear to all be doing the same thing, to just solve problems. But what they're paying attention to is very different, right? If, we, if we're paying attention to the mistakes we make and figure out, extract the lesson and what we can change going forward, then we are learning while doing. We are solving problems, but learning along the way. If we're only paying attention to what we do well, um, then we're just doing and we're not getting better. Mm. You mentioned learning, Eduardo, and I'm, I'm wondering, you're... Chapters, a chapter in your book that really does a wonderful job of explaining some of the misconceptions, common misconceptions about learning. Uh, I was hoping you can outline some of them and maybe tell us what the realities are. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of mis- because in in schools have never been tasked with teaching how to learn. Like that has never been part of the standards or what's assessed, and so. Um, most of us, at least it was my experience, the experience of many people, we've been taught things and skills, but we haven't taught, been taught, like, for example, the difference between the learning zone and the performance zone, or how to solicit feedback, or uh, how to experiment, you know, like in, in ways that are like in our personal and professional lives and doing that every day of our lives. Uh, and so there's a lot of misconceptions. There's there's a lot of le- learning science that we can learn from that we haven't learned yet because it hasn't been part of the structures and systems that we grew up as part of. One misconception is what we've talked about of believing that in order to learn and improve, we just have to work hard, right? And doing the thing and then we'll get better. We've talked about that. And, and the reality is that there's two different forms of effort, effort to improve and effort to perform. And we need to engage in both types of efforts, but it's the effort to improve that leads to improved performance. Uh, another misconception is people who learn about growth mindset often distorted into something else. Like if we ask people, what does a growth mindset mean to you? People often answer, it's being open-minded or it's working hard or it's persevering. And those things are not growth mindset. And so it's hard to foster a growth mindset if we are not clear on what it is. A growth mindset is the belief that people can change, that our abilities or qualities are malleable. And one reason that's important is that when we kind of distort it into, for example, uh, working hard, for example, if we see somebody not working hard, like we might encourage them to work hard. But what growth mindset research shows is that if they're in a fixed mindset, if they believe, if they see human qualities as set the way they are, it it feels bad to work hard. Working hard is something that only people with low ability need. People with high ability don't need to work hard. And so we need need to work at both the behaviors level, but also the beliefs. And that's the, the beliefs part is the growth mindset work, but also the strategies, right? The learning zone strategies then reinforce the belief and they they reinforce each other. Um, or there's other misconceptions like a lot of people equate um, working on growth mindset with praising people for working hard. And then they end up um, 
praising people for working hard at the wrong times. Like sometimes they praise people for working hard when people aren't working hard, or sometimes they praise people for working hard when they're working hard to perform and they're not getting better. And so they're encouraging people to continue putting effort into things that are not leading to progress and improvement um, rather than like help people reflect on what different strategies can we use if we're, if we're not we're not getting better based on what we're doing now um and so the other thing with praise is that we can overdo it like we we don't want people to be working hard just for our judgment you know for us to to say that what they're doing is good we want people to connect with what's most important to them and to want to pursue those goals because that's what they choose and because you know, they they gain a lot of life fulfillment and, and positive experience just from from going through the process of growth and discovery and iteration and aha moments. And and so we want to engage in reflection and questions and model being learners ourselves and sharing what we're learning along the way rather than just kind of using praise so much. So there's also, you know, people often label themselves as growth mindset people like i'm a growth mindset person and they kind of think of themselves as a, a growth mindset as binary you're either growth mindset or fixed mindset and the reality is we are all a mix we all we all are in a fixed mindset some of the time about different abilities or different people and the more that we become more self-aware about where are we more in a fixed mindset then we can then think critically about okay like this fixed mindset is it true is it something that I do want to believe, or might this be an incorrect assumption and something that's getting in the way and creating a self-fulfilling prophecy? And so we need to kind of increase our self-awareness about where our fixed mindsets are and where they're problematic and where they're not problematic. I mean, that's important. You know, you, you introduced another concept, the growth propeller. Um, I was hoping you can identify some of the elements that uh, this concept can help uh, your readers in, in really driving growth and maybe learning while doing yeah, sure. The the growth propeller is the is a visual depiction of the five key elements that drive us to be motivated and effective learners and performers. So what what is it that we need to develop in ourselves in order to become effective like human beings in our personal lives and our professional lives? So I'll offer five things. Um and it's a it's a propeller that has three blades and in the middle uh, at the, in the access, there's two things. There's our purpose and our identity. And our what's most important about identity is to see our identity in many ways as something that evolves over time. Like we might see um, ourselves like very strongly as a friend at some point, and then you know as as a partner or um, a, a colleague, um, as a professional, as a as a leader later maybe like as a mentor so so our identity can evolve over time but also it's really important to see ourselves as a learner as someone who is always continuing to change ourselves and evolve through our our lives so those are some things to think about in terms of identity purpose is really important what do we care about what is most important to me because when we become clear about what's most important to us then we can ask ourselves what can i do to better pursue that and to become better at that and to and to make more progress toward those things that are most important to me and then the three blades are first beliefs second habits 
and third, community. So beliefs includes many different beliefs. One of them is growth mindset and fixed mindset, right? So what do we believe about the nature of abilities and qualities? But it might also be our beliefs about, for example, transparency. Transparency, sharing what we're thinking, sharing what we're feeling with people around us drives both learning and performing. So that, you know, is transparency something that I want more of in my life and something that I feel makes us stronger is an example of, of another belief. Then when it comes to habits, uh, we can think about, often people think about growth mindset as how we respond to mistakes. That's a very kind of reactive vision of growth mindset. How we respond to mistakes is really, really important, but it's, it's really, really powerful to build proactive habits where we are our, our constant evolution and constant change is the default. And we have habits in our life to drive that proactively, not just wait until we make mistakes or make surprises. And then there's community. Um, the people around us influence us so much. And they're the people we collaborate with in the learning zone and the performance zone. So who do we surround ourselves with and how do we help each other evolve and grow um, in, in ways that build trust between us belonging and collaboration, both in the learning zone and the performance zone are things to think about. How can overcoming the performance paradox change our lives and the lives of others? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the special edition of the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Eduardo Bersinio, author of the new book, The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. As I was going through, I was really appreciative of how you could shift your narrative from, you know, directing it towards individuals and organizations. And uh, and I'd like to transition to that and around keeping the learning topic front and center. But what are the pillars of a learning organization, Eduardo? Well, a learning organization is one where a major purpose of why people go there and are part of the organization is to grow and change themselves, right? And to improve over time. And, and so when we think about what makes for that, there's some things to think about are those things that help everybody in that organization build those five elements of the growth propeller that we just talked about, right? So what is our shared identity? What is our shared purpose? What are our shared beliefs? What are our shared habits? And what kind of community do we want to build? Those are things that 
cre can create a strong learning organization or a strong know-it-all organization where people act like know-it-alls, right? Like they have all the answers, right? And which is the opposite of of learning. Um, so we can think about, you know, learning organizations have strong leaders that set the stage. They're clear about what values are important, what behaviors are involved in those values. Like for example, soliciting feedback, is that important? Or talking about mistakes, or is it that we're trying to minimize mistakes? So being clear about setting the stage on what's valued and what behaviors it entails. Second is like setting systems and habits, but it doesn't have to be top down. It's more about ensuring that people can create systems and habits that work for them, both in the learning zone and the performance zone, so that engaging in the learning zone and in learning while doing is the easy default. And finally, these organizations have leaders that model learning. They don't only talk about the importance of learning, but they show themselves as learners explicitly and visibly. So often leaders engage in learning, but they do it in private. They might do it when other people aren't watching. So in learning organizations, leaders talk about what they're working to improve themselves, how they're going about it. Uh, they're sharing feedback they received and insights they've learned from that, what they're changing. Uh, they are asking questions and soliciting feedback. They're talking about mistakes and what we can learn from those mistakes so that when people see them engage in those behaviors, they emulate those behaviors. And, and they realize that these are the behaviors that make us a stronger organization, more likely to reach success. And these are the behaviors that are valued and that increase so people's social status in this community and that gets people promoted and efficacious as a leader. That's terrific. What can organizations do to set up structures and rituals that make engaging in the two zones, the performance zone and the learning zone, an everyday default? Well, first they can, um, at whatever level you're in, you can um, engage with the the your circle of influence uh to start these conversations right like you can like one example of how people some people do this and and it works well is you can watch i have a like an 11 minute ted talk on the learning zone and the performance zone it's called how to get better at the things you care about and so people watch it whether together or asynchronously kind of as homework for a meeting and then they get together and think about this is a learning zone something that we want more of uh how are we doing are we doing great like can we improve? And is there one thing that we want to work on at this point to become better at habituating the learning zone and putting it part, as part of our structures? It could be in what we talk about in our meeting agendas, or it could be what we do once a month or in our all hands uh, meetings and how we experiment. You know, it, it can be lots of different things. And there's lots of examples in the book about this. And for each team and organization, it might be a different kind of priority that they want to work on right now but is starting these conversations and and exploring ideas and picking you know what you want to deliberately work on together what are the foundations of a great learning team and how can we how can we lead a learning team to a better engage in those two zones well you know it's it's a lot of the same kind of principles of promoting the growth propeller right the shared identity shared uh, purpose, the beliefs, habits, and community, those are things that we can develop as a team. And when you look at organizations, even organizations with strong cultures, there's a lot of variability in team culture. Really, the team culture is the 
the most important cultural unit because we care about what the people that we engage with on a regular basis think and and how they think and what they think of us. And so we can build a culture together and those systems together, even if the organization is not doing that, you know, we can have a lot of agency first and foremost over our individual habits and then over our team. And then through that, we can we can influence the rest of the organization. You know, um, you have a wonderful quote. Uh, from uh, Warren Bennis, and you mentioned it earlier, the, the myth that uh, the leadership myth, that leaders are born, and, and he points out that's nonsense. In fact, the opposite is true. Leaders are re- made rather than born. How important is this insight? And to what extent are great leaders great learners? And the advi- are there any advice or strategies you would give to today's burgeoning leaders? Yeah, so it is really important. Sometimes we think about leaders as what makes a great leader as a natural leader. They either have it or they don't have it. Um, but it's really important to remind ourselves that no matter how good or bad we are as a leader right now, we can always get better and we can always learn You know, effective leadership strategies. We can practice. We can get feedback from people around us, You know, develop allies. We can say, hey, you know, I would love for you to observe me in this meeting and get me feedback You know, after the meeting. So those are some of the things we can do. And and what's important with leaders, often we tend to think that when we become a leader, we are supposed to act like a know-it-all. Like I have all the answers, I'm sure, of myself. And we might get the sense that if we act like a learner, other people will lose confidence in us or in the organization. But we need to create the coherence, the mental coherence, the mental models within ourselves and within our teams that make us, make us understand that Actually, feedback and learning behaviors are what makes us stronger. They're going to enable us to better navigate the rapid pace of change and to drive change. And so we can be highly confident that we'll get to success. And these are the behaviors that are going to enable us to get there. That's terrific. You know, um, once we're equipped with strong learning zone habits, um, how might we promote top performance? Yeah, so so chapter 13 of the book, the second to last chapter is about what do we do in the performance zone, right? And a key, a key strategy there is that we want to kind of systematize the the processes that work well so that we don't have to be thinking about everything all the time. We can embed that in our tools and in our habits into the way we do things so that we can perform well without needing to put so much attention into those things so we can free our attention to work on those things that can take us to the next level. So a lot of the kind of habits and systems that we have in companies, whether it is looking at dashboards or performance review processes, they're very much kind of good habits and systems that promote performance, accountability for performance. But we also want to think about how do we also promote systems and accountability for learning and for improvement as well? So we need both of those things, but but the performance systems are definitely part of what's important in order to get results. Yeah, I just have a couple of more questions for you. Um, I, I want to ask about the flywheel of competence. Um, I was wondering if you could highlight some of the key strategies and tools top performers introduced in your book uh, use uh, and what you found when you were kind of doing that research around some of the people you profile. Yeah, so there's a lot of different kind of strategies and tools, but one of the insights that comes from kind of the performance zone, looking at the performance zone, is that when we remind ourselves that we can always improve, when we prime a growth mindset, then we 
we reduce our performance anxiety because when we don't perform flawlessly, you know, that's, that's given, you know, we're humans, we're never going to do everything perfectly and like be the best in the world. You know, if, if we are, we can continue to improve further. And so remembering that we can always improve helps us stay calm. And when we do hiccups in our performance, we can know that later we can pay attention to these things and work on these things. So we can perform better because we're less anxious. Um, and then the flywheel of competence is the idea that often we're stuck in chronic performance. Uh, when we find ways to habituate the learning zone, even if it's in small ways, but frequent ways, then we start getting better and being able to achieve more in less time, which creates more time and space and skill for both the learning zone and the performance zone. That in turn makes us better, which even makes more time. And, and so it becomes easier and easier as we become more competent to both learn and perform. It becomes easier to accelerate our growth and accelerate our results. And that's what I call the flywheel of competence. Once we, once we get it turning, it's easier to turn it faster and faster. And then it's, it would be even hard to like stop because we are competent and, and our habits and our systems and our community are helping us promote continued acceleration. That's great. So uh, one last question. Um, how might overcoming the performance paradox change our lives and the lives of others? Well, you know, the we live in a world with very complex challenges, a uh, lot of change. And so engaging in the learning zone helps us navigate that change and, and create the change that is going to make the world a better place. But the the the, the learning zone and in, in, in incorporating the learning zone, the performance zone together changes not only the results, not only the outcomes, we, we can perform better and that's important. We can affect more impact and that's important, but it also changes the journey, right? Because when we when we discover more, we ask more questions, we we develop better relationships with the, with the people around us because we're more curious, we're asking more questions, listening better. Um, we are experiencing less anxiety and depression because you know the ongoing pace of change is something that's normal and that we can learn from, that we can get stronger from. Um, and and it's also something that generates joy as we explore, discover, experience more awe. It, it makes the experience of life richer. And that's what the last chapter is about, is about how incorporating the learning zone and the performance zone changes not only our outcomes and our results, but it also makes the process of life and work better. Mm, that's terrific. Eduardo, um, I, I want to thank you for joining me today and discussing your latest books, The Performance Paradox. How can folks get a copy of the book? The Performance Paradox is available wherever books are sold, anywhere uh, you would like to purchase it. Um, I'm really excited that it was selected by the Next Big Idea Club as a must-read. Uh, that's curated by Susan Cain, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, and Dan Pink. Um, and so that's, you know, Performance Paradox, if you want to go deeper, I'm also really active on LinkedIn, and I have a monthly newsletter on my website, briseno.com. Wonderful. Terrific. Thanks for joining me today. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Michael. I enjoyed your conversation. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Eduardo Bersinio, author of the new book, The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.